If you have your Bibles with you, open up to Matthew chapter 9. And we're going to read from verse 1 to verse 34. After getting into a boat, he crossed to the other side and came to his own town. Then some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a stretcher. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Have courage, son, your sins are forgiven. And some of the experts of the law said to themselves, This man is blasphemy. When Jesus saw their reaction, he said, Why do you respond with evil in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or stand up and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, Stand up, take your stretcher, and go home. And he stood up and went home. And when the crowd saw this, they were afraid and honored God who had given such authority to men. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting in a tax booth. Follow me, he said to him. And he got up and followed him. As Jesus was having a meal in Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw they said to, to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard this, he said, those who are healthy don't need a physician, but those who are sick do. Go and learn what this saying means. I want mercy and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Then John's disciples came to Jesus and asked, Why do we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples don't fast? Jesus said to them, The wedding guests cannot mourn while the bridegroom is with them, can they? But the days are coming when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and then they will fast. For no one sews a patch on unshrunk cloth, on an old garment because the patch will pull away from the garment and the tear will be made worse. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins, otherwise the skins burst, the wine is spilled out, and the skins are destroyed. Instead, they put new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. As he was saying these things, a ruler came and bowed low before him and said, My daughter has just died. But come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. And Jesus and his disciples got up and followed him. But a woman who had been suffering from a hemorrhage for 12 years came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak. For she kept saying to herself, If only I touch his cloak, I will be healed. When Jesus turned and saw her, he said, Have courage, daughter. Your faith has made you well. And the woman was healed from that hour. When Jesus entered the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the disorderly crowd, he said, Go away, for the girl is not dead, but asleep. They began making fun of him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in, gently took her by the hand, and the girl got up. And news of this spread throughout the region. 
And as Jesus went on from there, two blind men followed him, shouting, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he went into the house, the blind men came to Jesus, and, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe I am able to do this? And they said to him, Yes, Lord. And he touched their eyes, saying, Let it be done according to your faith. And their eyes were open, and Jesus sternly warned them, See that no one knows about this. But they went out and spread the news about him throughout the entire region. And as they were going away, a man who could not talk and was demon-possessed was brought to him. And after the demon was cast out, the man who had been mute spoke. And the crowds were amazed and said, Never has anything like this been seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, By the ruler of demons... He cast out demons. And Jesus went throughout all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every kind of disease and sickness. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the truth of your word. God, we thank you for what your word declares to us. As our desire, God, as we come to your word, as we study your word, God, that you might be glorified and magnified. Lord, we ask, Lord, that you would move by your spirit, that you would open up our eyes and our ears, that you would unblock our understanding, Lord, so that we can comprehend with all the saints what is the height, breadth, width, and depth of the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Help us be able to take the word that you have declared and see it bring forth life in us that you would be glorified and magnified in all you do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hey, the little ones are free. Peace, guys. Got out in just a nick of time. The preacher was getting ready to just go and go and go. <laughs> As we've been working our way through the gospel of Matthew, I just want to encourage you. One of the questions that I've been bringing up that we want to ask ourselves is in all the stories that Matthew could have talked about, right? We've spoken about this before. In the Gospel of John, it says, if everything Jesus did had been written down, all the books would not be able to contain all the stories. So there's a plethora of stories to pull from. Matthew chose these. And he chose them for a reason and for a purpose. And today, we're going to spend a little bit of time talking about faith. The word faith in English is in the Bible 680 times. That's a lot of times, right? A lot of times. Majority of those 680 are found in the New Testament. The Greek word appears 563 times in the New Testament. The, the need for faith is established over and over again. We're saved by faith. We're justified by faith. We live by faith. We are told to walk by faith and not by sight. Jesus healed people who had no faith. 
He healed people who were healed uh, by their faith or according to their faith. And he rebukes his disciples for having little faith. It is a large topic in Scripture. And oftentimes people have a little too simplistic a view of what faith really is. Faith is what it is to trust God, to believe in him. And oftentimes we accord that with a, a phrase. We say, I believe in whatever. I believe in Christ or I believe the sky is falling. It doesn't make any difference, but we're expressing our belief in something. But the Bible, the word in the Bible for faith is a little bit more involved in that. And one of the illustrations I've heard in the past and I've shared with you before is the illustration of a chair. If I say I believe in a chair, those are just words. They don't mean anything. I believe in the chair when I sit in the chair. When I entrust my weight, my being, my person to the chair. This is the faith that, that the Lord is calling people to. And this is one of the things we're going to see in this section. We're going to be looking from verse 14 on. Um, in Matthew chapter 9, at the idea that faith is demonstrated. We're going to see the demonstration of faith over and over again. We want to kind of pick out points of that demonstration uh, and hopefully help us kind of narrow down the idea so that our faith in God is not just words we say, right? Anybody can say anything, especially these days. Yes? Whatever I say has become my truth, but, but truth is not subjective. Truth is objective. And so we want to understand what, what is the truth about faith? What does it really mean? So let's look here. First thing we want to talk about is faith is demonstrated in a trusting relationship, not in religious observance. He says, then the disciples of John came to him and said, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples are not fasting? Now, in Scripture, there were multiple calls and of, of, uh, <clears throat> of days of fasting. Days of fasting were called at a variety of different times. Leviticus 23, specifically talking about the Day of Atonement, says this, Leviticus 23, 27, now on the 10th day of the seventh month, is the day of atonement. It shall be for you a time of holy convocation, and you shall, <coughs> excuse me, you shall afflict yourself and present a food offering to the Lord. And that phrase, you shall afflict yourself, is a phrase used for fasting. You will go without. You'll focus on a relationship with the Lord the idea in the Old Testament of fasting is the idea of being so focused on what God is doing, how, how you want God to work, or how you want God to move, that you don't do the things you normally do. Fasting was never supposed to be, hey, I'm going to give up meat for a while, and then God will answer my prayer. That was never what fasting was supposed to be. Fasting was supposed to provide us opportunity to focus on the Lord, to focus our prayer, to focus on our needs and the desire to see him move. In fact, 
Fasting is almost always implied in the concept of humbling yourself. Think about it. In 2 Chronicles 7.14, we should be relatively familiar with that. We've used that verse often. If my people who are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray. And the idea in that humbling ourselves is that our focus on prayer is so high, our desire for food has fallen away. We have all seen this in real life. Oftentimes in moments of great grief and sorrow, people don't want to eat because they're consumed by their grief or their sorrow or their struggle. Scripturally, when we talk about a fast, we're talking about people who are so focused on the Lord and drawing near to him that they don't want to eat. They don't want to be bothered by all the other things in life that get in the way. And there were specific days that were set aside for this. Now, Jesus has already given us some teaching on the idea of fasting. He's already talked about it in Matthew chapter 6. If you remember, Jesus said, Now when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites. For they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say, they have received their reward. Jesus is saying, when you fast, it's not so everybody can know how you're suffering by what you've given up. It's not about what you're not doing. It is about what you are doing. Seeking the Lord. Can you imagine seeking the Lord so fastidiously that you forgot about everything else that day? Just forgot to make lunch or dinner? You were so focused on seeking the Lord that this was the attitude that you see. He says, Jesus says in Matthew 6, 17, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face. So nobody knows that your fasting may not be seen by others, but that you're but by your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. It's all about, it's relational, not religious. Do you get the idea? It's about pursuing him, not about what observance can I do? What, what hoop do I need to jump through to accomplish this? Jesus is going to respond to them in verse 15 in Matthew 9. Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them. Now Jesus is saying, look, they're walking around with God. The disciples in those three years walking around with Jesus, can you imagine? Because I would say the greatest desire in our lives that we can't even express would be to have what was lost in the garden, that man would walk with God in the cool of the evening. And these guys had that. They might not even have recognized at the time how satisfied they were walking with Jesus for those three years. And Jesus is saying, I'm still here. They don't need to fast right now. But I will be taken away. And in those days, they will fast. The point that Jesus is laying out for them, the principle about fasting, is about about seeking that which has been lost. What, that close 
personal relationship with Jesus as they're walking, there will come days in the midst of their sorrow and suffering where they're going to go after the Lord and those days they will fast. But you won't be able to tell when you look at them because their face is washed and they look like every other day. But their pursuit of God has taken its place. It is about faith is demonstrated by trusting ourselves in our relationship with Christ, not by this observance. Here's, here's why. Isaiah, writing to the nation of Israel in Isaiah 58, talks about the, what happens in people when we talk about fasting is we focus on what we're fasting from. And we don't focus on who we're fasting to. So we say, I'm doing a Daniel fast. Oh, what's a Daniel fast? Okay, well, I'm not eating any bread, or I'm only eating vegetables, or I'm not eating anything at all, I'm only having water. Or we, and we, all that takes our focus and our time, and, and our time and focus, it's not a diet. It's about pursuing the Lord. Here's what Isaiah wrote in Isaiah 58. Is... Such the fast that I chose, a day for a person to humble himself. So the Lord's describing what is fasting, humbling yourself before the Lord. Is it to bow down his head like a reed, to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Is it about the physical observance? Will you call this a fast and a day that is acceptable to the Lord? And then he responds, is not this the fast that I chose? To loose the bonds of wickedness to undo the straps of the of the yoke and let the oppressed go free to break every yoke is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh your own family then shall your light break forth like the dawn. Your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness will go before you, and the glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. See, the Lord is saying it is about, Scripture has always called us, challenged us as men and women to obey God. We want to obey God. But we try to find these observances that somehow bridge that gap. And the Lord's like, Look, I don't, I don't care what diet you're on, what food you don't eat, or, or what you do eat. Here are the things that I want your fast to be built on. And these are fasts that would be indicated by drawing near to the Lord. Because when we draw near to the Lord, what happens? We start to reflect His character more clearly. We start to look like Him. We love what He loves and hate what He hates. We're able to express Him. Why? Because... The important part of this that we want to glean is the reality that our faith is demonstrated by our trusting relationship with a person. I love that song, Psalm 90, because Jesus is our hiding place, and our hiding place is a person. He's real. He's one that we have a relationship with. So Jesus is going to contrast the idea in Matthew 9. He's going to contrast the idea of religious observance. Here's my checklist, do's and don'ts. He's going to contrast religious observance with true faith. So let's look at it, verse 16. He says, no one puts a piece of 
unshrunk cloth on an old garment. For the patch tears away from the garment, the, and, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put in old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. New wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. The old garment, the wineskins, represent traditions of religious leaders, not the Old Testament. The Old Testament has not been cast off, has no value or point or instruction. Paul's going to say it's the Old Testament that's our tutor that leads us to Christ. It's the Old Testament that shows us our sin. It is the tradition of the leaders. Like, here's when you should do, this is what we do. This time of the year, every day, we, this was my struggle. We talked a little bit last time about how we have, uh, my generation turned its back on liturgical traditions of the church. We left all those liturgical traditions, and we left some good things when we did it. But we left all of those liturgical things that were traditions. They were not a relationship. So we always did a certain thing a certain way, the same way all the time. That's the problem with liturgy. The positive thing we lost was men understanding our, our chief purpose in life, right? We, don't, we no longer teach the catechal statements. We no, no longer understand. So kids go through life thinking the chief purpose of, of life is to be happy. Good luck. And that was our job as leadership in the church, as fathers in the home, as parents to our children. That was our job to teach. The things we were leaving were the old traditions, the traditions that had lost their meaning. And this is what Jesus is talking about. Don't try to take those old traditions and utilize those old traditions. They don't fit with what I'm doing. Your old traditions about fasting. Jesus saying now is a day of celebration. There will be other times for fasting. But don't try to, don't try to, to blend these things together. We need new containers that are more flexible. Those old traditions that, that are dead, let them go. And allow God to move in a new way. Let me, let me try to express this another way. Jesus is going to talk about the same kind of an idea in Matthew chapter 15. <clears throat> so if you look in Matthew 15, beginning at verse 1, Here's, here's what Jesus taught. Listen to this. This will help you understand what he's talking about. The Pharisees and the scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem, and they said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They do not wash their hands when they eat. He answered them and said, Why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of tradition? This is the battle. The battle between the commandment of God and the tradition of men. Don't try to fit the commandments of God and the traditions of men, they won't go together. And man's traditions, we, we have to be wary of that because we can always fall into traditions <clears throat> and things that we do only because they're traditions. It's something if it's teaching us an attribute or characteristic of God. Does that make sense? But if it's not doing that, if it's not drawing us into a relationship with God, then 
Jesus is going to say, why are you focused on the traditions and not the commandments? He says to him right here, why, why do you forsake the commandment of God? For God said, honor your father and mother, and whoever hates father or mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father or mother, what you would have gained for me, I have given to God. He need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. So what they taught was when your father and mother get older and it would normally be time where you would be taking them on as a part of your uh, responsibility to care for your father and mother as they get older, it's okay for you to, to deny them that and say, I've given all the money that I would have used that to the Lord. So I've honored you by giving that money to God and I don't really have to honor you in life. And Jesus said, what are you talking about? Well, who, who told you that this is okay? Listen to what he said. You hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy about you. Listen, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. We have a tendency to build tradition and things that look glorifying to God and look like we're wanting to honor the Lord in the things we do, but there's no real substance of that. We do that rather than just obey what he said. We don't want to have to be obedient. So we see this faith that has a trusting relationship in God is not religious in its observance, and it's not about the traditions of men which usually are the two places we spend the majority of our time, right? We want to look a certain way, sound a certain way, act a certain way, all built on tradition. It's one thing if it's built on relationship. It's not if it's tradition. Punching a card, just trying to do what we think is going to please God instead of doing what God simply told us to do. Love God. Love people. All the law and the prophets are fulfilled in this. So we're going to see three, is it three examples? We'll see in a minute because we're about to jump into it, of this demonstration of faith. One of them is going to be inter uh, interrupted by another, and then there'll be a third, maybe a fourth. We'll see. There will be a fourth. If there's not a fourth today, there will be next week. So stay tuned. So here we go, the demonstration of faith. So we've seen what is faith, trusting, a trusting relationship in a personal God, not religious observance. Well, what's that look like? Okay, Matthew 9, uh, verse 18. And while he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him saying, my daughter has just died. Come and lay your hand on her and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. Now in the other gospels, we know who this is. This is Jairus. This is Jairus and his daughter. In fact, Mark picks up the story a little bit earlier. And when, he, when Jairus first comes to Jesus, he says to him, My little daughter is at the point of death. Hurry, come, you can save her. And then it takes Jesus too long. While they're traveling, we see that some of the, some of the, the servants from this man, Jairus, they come and say, Don't trouble the master anymore. Your daughter's died. Luke tells us she's 12 years old. 
She's 12 years old. Mark 35, uh, Mark 535 says, Now while he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house someone who said, Your daughter is dead. This is the point where Matthew picks up the story. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not be afraid. Have faith. That's what that phrase, but believe, means. Trust me. Is it always easy to trust God? Anybody having a hard time trusting God this week? Sometimes it's difficult. Sometimes it's a challenge. Oftentimes we ask ourselves questions. We'll go through the gospel, (coughs) excuse me, and we'll see all the things that the disciples saw and did. And then we're going to hear them be described as some doubted. And we're going to say, how in the world could those guys still have struggles with their trusting in God? And then we should stand up and go look in the mirror and say, I don't know how they had a hard time with it. We all struggle, right? And what gets in the way? Exactly what Jesus said in Mark. What gets in the way? You're afraid. You're afraid of what God's going to do, that you're not going to like it. You're afraid of, of what God may allow. You're afraid of a lot of possibilities that you don't know about. And Jesus' word to you today would be the same as the word to Jairus. Don't be afraid. Trust me. Trust the Lord with all your heart. Lean not into your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him. He'll guide you. This is what Jesus is saying to them. So Matthew picks it up at the point of the death of Jairus' daughter. My daughter has just died. Come lay your hand on her and she will live. And so Jesus gets up and he follows him with his disciples. Now, this demonstration of faith gets interrupted right there by another demonstration of faith. Just so happens, there's another woman who had an issue of blood for 12 years. Do you believe in coincidence? I don't either. A 12-year-old girl has just died, and a woman who has been treated as though she is a symbol of death for 12 years, is reaching out to touch Jesus. Now, I don't ever want you to lose sight of this reality. Again, this reality is going to come up over and over and over again. I don't want you to lose sight of it. Let's, Let's pick up the story. Behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him, And touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, if I only touch his garment, I will be made well. This is an illustration of what Jesus just told Jairus to do. Don't be afraid. Trust me. Don't be afraid. Have faith. Don't be afraid. Believe. And so this woman, now the discharge of blood is important because it made her ceremonially unclean. She, in those 12 years, was a living picture of death. 
Jesus Christ is a living picture of life. In the culture of the Jew, someone who was unclean touching someone who was clean made them, except for one person ever, the one who is life incarnate, it didn't work that way with Jesus. We'd already seen him touch a leper, right? And he didn't become leprous. The leper got healed. We've already seen him illustrate for the people that you're unclean and I'm clean. But if I touch you, you can be made clean. Folks, that's what salvation is. We are children of wrath. We are unclean before a holy God. And Jesus Christ makes us clean. We are justified by faith, by trusting in him. And he touched me. And he made me clean. This woman believed. All she had to do was touch him. Listen, I don't care about the hem of the garment. If if I had an online business, I could sell the hem of Jesus' hem every day for a million years so people could all buy a hem and then touch it and be healed. Hem had nothing to do with any of it. Everything has to do with Jesus. She reached out. She had faith. She trusted that all she needed. I am unclean, ceremonially unclean for 12 years. This means she's probably been divorced. The the text doesn't tell us, but it would be an amazing man of that day who stayed with her. She can't have children. She's ceremonially unclean every day, every single day for 12 years. Every time her husband would touch her, he would become unclean. So this was a social problem, this ceremonial uncleanliness. In fact, the scripture tells him, Mark, if we look at the other (coughs) examples of the story, Mark 5, 26, speaking of her, says, who had suffered much under many physicians. Anybody ever found that to be true? Anyone ever suffered much under physicians? And spent everything that she had. You see, this is not new. It was happening at Jesus' time. She suffered under physicians, spent everything she had, and was no better. Only worse. Luke 8.43, Luke being a doctor says it nicer. Luke says, there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years, and though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. Why? She could not be healed because her problem was of being ceremonially unclean. It is an illustration or a picture of all men born under sin before holy God. They are all unclean before holy God, and they all need to be made clean. And you can only be made clean through Jesus Christ. That's the whole point. The whole point of the story. This woman was expectant. She understood He can make the unclean clean, so much so that she put herself in danger of death. If the people knew who she was before she was made clean, they would have drug her out and killed her. They would have drug her out and killed her because her being unclean was making them unclean. Everyone she touched in the crowd 
everyone she bumped up against. That's why people who were ceremonially unclean, like lepers, like this particular case with this woman, were ostracized and put oftentimes outside the camp. But to get close to Jesus in the midst of a crowd, you had to say, you know what, I don't care about any of that. I just need him. There's a lot of pictures in that illustration we need to understand, no? So she risked it all just to touch him. She trusted in him, in his person. And she was encouraged by the Lord. Jesus turned and seeing her said, Take heart, daughter. <coughs> Your faith has made you well. Your belief, believing in Jesus Christ, trusting in him. How do I know she trusted him? She risked it all just to touch him. She risked it all. She wanted to sit in the chair. She couldn't wait to get there. She knew all she needed in life was Jesus Christ. This is a picture of faith. Now we come back to the ruler. Now I want you to understand, Jairus is a ruler <clears throat> of the synagogue. It's not a little job. He's a big guy, big wig. If we go back earlier in the text, if you look back in, in the text in verse uh, 18, it says, Behold, the ruler came in and proskeneu. That's the Greek word. When we read it, he knelt down before him. This is a big deal. What he did was, pros means toward, keneu, to kiss. It was an act of worship. It was an act of, that a person would offer to a king. They would come to the king and they would kneel before the king and they would kiss the ring. You guys kind of get the, the picture? So the idea is this guy who has authority is coming before Jesus and laying all that authority down and he is humbling himself before the Lord. What does the Bible say? If we humble ourselves before the Lord, he will do what? He will lift you up. Psalm 2.12 says, Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him, in the son. Here you have this ruler coming before the son of God and bowing his knee before him and saying, I need you. My little girl is dying, and I need you. Now, the scripture tells us in verse 23, back to the ruler, when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players in the crowd making a commotion, he said, go away. This girl is not dead. And they laughed him to scorn. In those days, if you were a prominent person in the community, like Jairus is, if someone in your family died, professional mourners would come, and they would play professional mourning songs, and they would wail and weep so that everyone would hear the great commotion and understand how much this person was loved and cared for by these professional mourners who would come out. And when Jesus gets there, they're doing this. Because they know the girl's dead. Look, the girl's not sleeping. The girl's not in a coma. Jesus does not resuscitate. He resurrects. 
So Jesus comes there and he says to them, hey, get out of here. The, the funeral's been canceled. And they all laugh at him. They all laugh at him. <clears throat> they ridicule him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went inside, took her by the hand, and the little girl arose. Don't miss this. <clears throat> if you touch the dead, you are made unclean. But Jesus touches the dead, and the dead are made alive. For you were dead in your trespasses and sin, but he, Jesus Christ, has made you alive together with him. For by faith you have been saved. By faith we are touched by the clean and holy God. Just like Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6 in the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah says, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. And as Isaiah stood before a holy God, he recognized himself. And woe is me, for I'm a man of unclean lips. I'm unclean before a holy God. I'm going to die. But an angel took a coal from the altar and touched his lips and said, Your sin is purged. You and you are commissioned go and tell the people who won't listen that God will make a way and that's what Isaiah did here we see Jesus reaches out and he touches this little girl Talitha Kumi I love that phrase my little child, arise. And she arose. And the report of this went throughout the district. That's kind of a small way of saying it. No? We have to get in our minds. This stuff was not happening every day. You didn't just live. That wasn't a world that you just woke up. And I wonder who's going to raise from a dead today. That world of people being cleansed and people being healed, that wasn't happening all the time, except for three years when Jesus was here. And for those three years, it happened so much that the priests couldn't keep up with all the happenings. People were be de being declared clean right and left. It should have been setting off alarms, right? Should have been setting off alarms. Oh, the Messiah is here. But they're so stuck in their traditions that they cannot see even when the light of the world is standing in front of them. That's why the story goes on. Matthew 9, 27. As Jesus passed on from there, Two blind men followed him, crying aloud. That word for crying literally means they're screaming at the top of their lungs. They're screaming, Son of David, have mercy on us. That is the first time in the book of Matthew, Jesus is given the title of Messiah. They are shouting as loud as they can. They're blind. And they see better than the seeing people that are standing around him. 
They cried at the top of their lungs, have mercy on us, son of David. So Jesus doesn't say nothing to him. He just goes in the house. And the blind men came to him. And then Jesus said, do you believe I'm able to do this? And they said, yes, Lord. See, their demonstration of faith is in a person. The person they're standing before. Because perhaps they understood what the scripture said in Isaiah 35. Isaiah 35, speaking of Messiah, said, The eyes of the blind will be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped, the lame will leap like a deer, the tongue of the mute will sing for joy, for water breaks forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. God never done anything. He didn't tell his prophets beforehand, and they wrote it down for us. So these guys are saying, you're Messiah, and you open the eyes of the blind. They probably have already heard about this, right? They have a trust in him. So they're going to be demonstrating <clears throat> in the cries of the blind. They recognize who he is. You are Messiah. And they relied on his mercy. Look at verse 29. Then he touched their eyes. It's a lot of touching. Then he touched their eyes and said, According to your faith. That phrase, according, I don't want you to misunderstand the English. That means in response to, not in proportion to. Because you trust me, you can see. Because you've made this choice, this, this is a relational, not a traditional observance. This is a, relation, a relational item. He is saying, look... Because you <coughs> have responded in faith, I'm going to open your eyes. And so he opened their eyes, and then he sternly warned them, don't tell anybody. How are you supposed to do that? <laughs> Look, I, I was trying to think about this because I was honestly going to bust these guys' chops for not obeying Jesus. And, and uh, please, they, they probably deserve their chops busted for not obeying Jesus. But it's, not, it's impossible for you to walk around and not have somebody say, you can see? <laughs> and then the next question is going to be, what happened? But something's going to be lost in Capernaum around this time. Their people are going to get so focused on the miracles that they lost the message that the clean can make the unclean clean. They're going to lose that message and they're going to just focus on miracles. We still do that today, right? If someone gets healed or God does an amazing thing, it's easy to lose the message that as sovereign God touched us, hey, hallelujah, praise the Lord, but we lose the message and we start chasing the miracle. And the scriptures are going to tell us Jesus has to leave Capernaum because he can't find any peace there. Because everybody brings to him the sick and he touches them, but they're losing the message because they're, they are, what's, what's a good word? 
they they are confused by the miracle. They they're not seeing what they need to see. Uh, that still happens, doesn't it? Still still today, if there's there, we have all this focus on miracle, miracle this, miracle that. How come there's not all the miracles going on today that was going on then? Well, because Jesus was walking on earth. It's kind of a big deal. You have the first generation of apostles filled with that same power, doing the same work. And then it, it goes away. Well, that doesn't mean God doesn't do the miraculous. Today he does, but... You don't see somebody passing by your shadow and getting healed. I don't care what anybody says on TV. Because we have a tendency to lose sight of the message. There will be a day when there will be no more tear, no more sorrow, no more pain. Because we'll be with Jesus like it was here. We will be with him. It says in verse 31, so they went away and spread his fame everywhere. They didn't even try. They did not even try. They told everybody everywhere that they went. <clears throat> verse 32 says, and when they were going away, you see this phrase in Matthew over and over again, and right after that, and right after that, I want you to imagine what Jesus' day looked like. Because this is not every story. They're just the ones Matthew picks. And right after that, another, and right after that, another, and right after that, another, and right after that, another. Story after story, illustration after illustration after illustration. Mind-boggling. As they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. Now, this does not mean all mute people are demon-possessed. But this guy was. He had a demon-possessed guy. And when the demon was cast out, the mute man spoke, just like Isaiah 35 said, Right? The lame will walk, the blind will see, the mute will speak. All of these signs that Isaiah says of the Messiah, Jesus is doing. And the crowds marveled. Yeah, they marveled because there's never been a time since then like that before or after. Nobody else did what Jesus did. But the Pharisees said, he's casting out demons by the power of demons. He's casting out demons by the power of Beelzebub, the Lord of the flies. He's casting them out by, the, by demonic power. They just changed all their theology. In that one statement, their hatred of Jesus because of his breaking of their traditions, not the law of God, but of breaking their traditions, their, their, un, their, their unshrunk patch on a shrunken cloth was tearing away their theology gets thrown away because they had already said no man can do these things except by the power of god a sinner cannot do this <clears throat> but jesus is breaking your traditions and instead of saying then our traditions got to go they say jesus does this by the power of demons they threw their theology out the window so you mean demons can walk around healing people? That wasn't their theology before. But it has become theirs now. Look what Jesus continued doing in verse 35. Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in the synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, healing 
<clears throat> every disease and every affliction. Everybody Jesus tried to heal, he healed. He never failed once. Everyone Jesus tries to save will be saved. He does not fail to save. But the basis of salvation is that a man must come to him in faith. Not in words, in faith. Everyone Jesus sought to heal. There's never a time in the scripture where Jesus tried to heal somebody and he couldn't do it. Never a time. And you don't have to have perfect faith. The Bible would say, with faith like a mustard seed, you could move a mountain. Since there's not a lot of mountains moving currently, I would say sometimes our faith is smaller than a mustard seed. <clears throat> it's not faith that saves you. It's the person in whom you place your faith. For our hiding place is a person. His name is Jesus Christ. He is able to make us clean. We just put our trust in him. And no, I do not say that trust is a work. It's not a work. I haven't done anything. Jesus did it all. But I must trust him. I put myself in him. I go through the crowds to get to Jesus. Even though I'm a man of authority, I bow down in humility before Jesus. Even though I can't see what's going on, I can shout out the top of my lungs, He is my Savior, my Mashiach Nagid. And even though I can't do anything, a mute man possessed by a devil does not have a lot of faith. Jesus is able. He is always able he is able to meet you wherever you are. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and let him lift you up. For Jesus said, if the Son of Man is lifted up, I will draw all men unto myself. And whoever calls on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ shall be saved. Believe him and watch what our God can do. Amen? Amen? Why don't you stand with me? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth of your word laid out before us this morning, Lord God, I thank you that you are a God mighty to save. I thank you that you are able to touch a man in his deadness, in his uncleanness. I thank you that you are able through the pen of Matthew to illustrate what faith looks like. It's not a grand work, but it is trust hope, faith, belief in a person.
Not a, not a thing, not an observance, not a religion, a person. God, I pray this morning that there be anyone here that does not know you, needs to be cleansed, touched by the Savior. God, I pray that they would seek your face. Like the woman, like a father, like the blind. Or like the mute. Whatever ails mankind, and the greatest ailment we have is sin, you, Lord Jesus Christ, are the solution for. So, God, I pray that men and women would come to you, know your cleansing power, to recognize that we need you can't do this myself to recognize that you are our hiding place to recognize that you Lord God Almighty are the ancient of days and one like unto the son of man came before you and you set him on your throne and you said sit here until I make your enemies your footstool one day all the kings and the kingdoms of all the earth will bow the knee and one day every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father today I pray for the individuals who haven't done that that they would freely turn their eyes to Jesus and look full in his wonderful face. And whatever is hindering them today would fall away as they feel your amazing grace. God be glorified in this place. In Jesus' name we pray.